Hello, and welcome to the Blue Dumpling Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jonathan Rowland of Fells Group. And I'm Tanya Bui of PWP Strategies. This is your go-to podcast centered on elevating the voices of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in political and civic life. All right, so our second podcast, Tanya, um, I had such a fun time on our first podcast with Devang Shah, the chair of the Maryland Diversity Leadership Council for the AAPIs. Yes. Uh, it was great, don't you think? Oh, he brought in some really great insights and definitely some pointers to think about with our audience. Definitely. definitely. And I was excited for that podcast. I'm very excited for this podcast because she has been making waves. She made waves during her historic 2018 campaign, and now she's making waves as a member of the General Assembly, and I just can't wait to introduce her to our audience. Tanya, do you want to kick us off? Oh, absolutely. Thanks, Jonathan. Yes, today we have a trailblazing guest for the podcast. I am so excited to introduce Delegate Lily Chi, who represents Maryland's District 15. As Jonathan mentioned, she was elected in 2018 and she became the first Chinese American immigrant ever elected to the Maryland General Assembly. And Delegate Chi ran a phenomenal district campaign. Her election gained national press coverage from NPR and the Washington Post and several other outlets for her successful record of energizing Asian American immigrant voters. Delegate Chief focuses on making Maryland more competitive, inclusive, and sustainable as a lawmaker. She's been named Legislator of the Year three times for her leadership on growing industries of the future and supporting local small businesses. Her legislative efforts have led to the establishment of a straight green bank for clean energy investments, the LGBTQ Commission, and Maryland's paid family and medical leave program. Now, before serving as a legislator, Delegate Chi held a career in local government and economic development. She oversaw economic and workforce development strategies and partnerships in Montgomery County, Maryland, and was also a senior economic development official involved in Washington, D.C.'s revitalization initiative. Delegate Chi is a longtime champion on immigrant integration and local involvement. She was also a columnist for Asian Fortune, which is an Asian American ethnic media publication, and she used that as a platform to promote voting, serving, and giving. She served on numerous boards and commissions and was previously chair of the Governor's Commission on Asian American Affairs. Delegate Chi remains very active in recruiting more Asian Americans to participate in the civic and political arenas. Now, both Jonathan and I have had the chance to work with Delegate Chi in different capacities, and now here we are in this space. So I'm so honored to have you here today, Delegate Chi. Thank you so much, Jonathan and Tanya. I commend you for starting this podcast. This is much needed and for your great community leadership as well. We know you're super busy. You're wrapping up your legislative hearings and then you're preparing for the big three-month legislative session stunt starting in January. Yes. How's that going? Sprint. Yeah, it's getting busier every day with the more people pitching bill ideas, with our team digging into the research, evaluating the merit of different ideas. And the goal is always to make Maryland better and stronger and to solve people's problems. So we start with what problems can we solve? What value can we add? And it has been a wild but very productive ride, I would say. <laughs> well, we commend you for all the work that you do. 
Thank you. So I got I got to say, when Tanya uh, was reading through your, your bio there, I was so impressed. And um, one thing that really stuck out is you've been named Legislative of the Year three times since 2018. That's three out of five years. That's that's incredible. That's right. how, how does someone get named Legislator of the Year <laughs> three times in, in, in well, five years? Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, I appreciate your uh, such kind complimentary words, but I have been very fortunate to be able to bring my personal experiences and professional background to my legislative work because I have carved out a fairly strong niche as someone with an economic development background. And also because as an immigrant, you know, I feel strongly about the need for America and for Maryland to be more competitive. So I focused a lot making Maryland more competitive, at the same time, more inclusive and more sustainable. Um, so with these guiding principles, I focused a lot on growing industries of the future. So for example, I focused on um, legislation that would establish programs to support tech and bio industries, you know, clean energy industries and manufacturing industries and also removing barriers for small businesses. And I feel strongly that Maryland with such rich assets, both in terms of human capital and R&D assets really could do better on many fronts. Um, so I have become a champion for many of those needs. But at the same time, as an immigrant and someone who struggled for many years uh, just to find my footing, I have compassion for a lot of people who are still struggling and feel like the American dream is not achievable for them, which is why you know, I work on helping the marginalized voices by establishing the LGBTQ Commission, by establishing Family Medical Leave Program, which is many people's efforts over many years. But since I serve on this committee, I was able to cross the finish line, so to speak. So last year was a big year when we finally got that done. It was a big deal for the state of Maryland because so many families and workers can really benefit from that. I think that's so great. And, you know, I, I like how you brought up just working with you with the Democratic Business Council, you know, hosting events with us and from, you know, being part of the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Program. And you've been involved speaking to that group a few times. Not many people in the General Assembly have such a strong economic background, you know, that you have. But at the same time, you know, you also, from your immigrant past, understand, you know, all these societal issues that we have. And being able to bridge those together, I think, is something unique. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I think I've carved out the lane. I'm proud to be a champion. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and what I hear is definitely you brought your not only your vision, but to weave in your personal background and how to make better for greater change has really been the theme as we've watched you rise in the General Assembly. And I think that what we have also noticed over the years, what we love about you is that you do not fit the mold of an Asian American stereotype, right? And <laughs> we've noticed that you are not shy about staying quiet, and you're definitely one of those legislators who is willing to call out what needs to be called out. And so you're very vocal, especially when it comes to rhetoric that might harm Asian American communities, particularly immigrant communities. And so I guess I want to explore that a little more on how you navigate Asian American identity and how does that translate in some of the work that you do as a legislator? Wow, that's such a broad but also deep question. I think each one of us uh, as Asian Americans broadly defined can have a lot to say about this, right? And I think, first of all, 
because I am a Chinese immigrant, my authentic real cultural identity is as an ethnic Chinese American, right? I am Chinese and American and I'm proud of both. I try to be a cultural bridge, speak for the people from different communities who feel like a political outsiders. And that does include Asian Americans of different ethnicities. And I think you can all agree that while Asian Americans have been generally perceived as quite successful in many ways, and many of us are, uh, we are fortunate to have achieved our American dreams, but we are also a super diverse uh, social, economically, and culturally as a community. And uh, the larger community oftentimes does not understand Asian Americans and try to lump us into one category. And when something happens, all of us get blamed, and then all of us tend to be dismissed in the political space uh, mm -hmm. because in the national capital region, and especially United States of Maryland, a uh, vast majority of Asian Americans are immigrants. People like us identify with our ethnic identities more strongly than with the racial identity, right? So when people talk about Asian Americans, a lot of our people don't have the kind of uh, sentiment to feel connected with that identity, and they don't necessarily respond to that. So I think it's important for leaders of the larger community to understand how we see ourselves, which is more by cultural and ethnic identities than by racial and political identities, right? So that speaks to the strategies of engagement, of using ethnic media, using community leaders that speak our languages and all of that, instead of lumping us together into this political construct as Asian Americans, because especially here in this region, vast majority of us were not born American citizens speaking English as a first language. So it's a whole different world that we live in. And I think that is a very important distinction which is, you know, immigrants are not American minorities. We are not the same. You know, mm -hmm. if you use the same kind of strategies of engagement and mindset expectations, you're going to be disappointed as political parties or as political leaders. We're just not the same, not cut out from the same cloth, so to speak. It's fascinating that you bring that up. And we had this, this conversation with our last podcast guest too, which is, you know, even the term AAPI, that's a term the yeah. government made up, right? It goes deeper. There's Chinese Americans, you know, Indian Americans, sub-ethnicities. And it's important that both elected leaders and, you know, the political consultants and running campaigns, all that, really recognize that. Because I think sometimes we get just painted a broad brush of, oh, here's the AAPI community. You know, what, what does that right. even mean? <laughs> so. Right. And, and politically, it's dangerous because yeah. uh, if political parties think Asian Americans are one group and behave certain ways, they tend to dismiss us as irrelevant. When in fact, a lot of us could be convinced, my campaign showed that people could be convinced that to get off the fence and join the Democratic Party, for example, in the state of Maryland, because once they realized and once you explain to them what's at stake, people's behavior can be changed. So I think that's important. And for AAPI communities ourselves, it's important that regardless of where you came from, where you were born, once you are American, you need to play that game. You need to own your Asian American identity because that's how people are gonna see you and treat you, right? It takes both for the dynamic to work out for our community. That's great. Well. I definitely can't wait to get to talking about your campaign because, boy, did you really flip the script on uh, what it means to run a successful campaign. Uh, but 
Before we get there, I just wanted to ask you, you know, we've all seen, you know, a, a rise in Asian American hate crimes, you know, hateful things happening, you know, especially since the rise of COVID. And you've really been at the forefront, you know, of that in the General Assembly. Can you just tell us a little bit about your work and what you've been doing there to make sure our community as a whole is, is being protected? Yeah, um, I think the COVID really and the, and the whole pandemic really reminded us that it was thinly veiled racism against xenophobia against Asian Americans still very much alive. And it didn't take much. As I said, it only took an invisible little virus to reveal the ugliness that has always been there, which is we are perceived as perpetual foreigners, no matter how many generations some of us have been here, right? And so we cannot just be on the sideline when it comes to fighting racism and the bigotry against any communities of any kind, you know, because what can happen to one community can happen to all of us. Mm -hmm. As they say, if a system is not safe for one, it's not safe for any, right? So I think the pandemic really has revealed that important lesson for Asian Americans. And for me, as one of the few Asian Americans and only a couple of, uh, you know, one of the maybe two or three immigrant uh, legislators, I felt this tremendous oversized responsibility to speak up and speak out when I see something that is grossly unjust and unfair and in defending our dignity, not only as state legislators who were duly elected by our people to speak and represent them, but you know, as minorities, you always represent two communities, not just a geographic community that elected you, but the larger cultural community that see you as an example of what's possible. Right. So I felt the need to defend uh, my bill on the floor to fight back against the bigotry that I heard in one of my colleagues' criticism of my bill, calling you know crony capitalism, central planning, and even communist. And I, I said, that. if I were not mm -hmm. growing up, someone who grew up in communist China, I don't think that kind of language would have come out. Right. This is outright racism that should not be tolerated. So I not only spoke out, but I wrote an op-ed about this because I needed to stop it cold so that in the future, there will be people who follow my footsteps and say, hey, this is how we do it. You know, we're not going to let people mess up with us, so to speak. Right. We're proud of who we are and we're going to stand our ground. You know? Yeah. And, and I love what you that. said, how you it summarizes very well. Speak up and speak out. Right. And I think that is like the essence of probably why you ran to become a legislator. So can you tell us why you decided to run for the House of Delegates? Well, it was not an overnight decision uh, because of a couple of reasons. One, before I ran, I have had a long you know, track record as a public servant. I worked in DC economic development, and then I transitioned to Montgomery County where I lived and raised a family and uh, worked in different communities on government cultural competency, immigrant integration, and then economic development. I just cared a lot about this community, about our county and the state. And I saw the dynamics of the national capital region. I just felt like we could do better. There were bigger things I could do to contribute at a higher level. And I said I needed to have my own platform as an elected official. And also at the same time, many people, especially people from the Asian American community said, we don't have someone like you who actually speaks another language, who came as an adult, as an immigrant and uh, built your own life, having that kind of perspectives to represent us, right? So we need you to run. And I felt like representation does matter. You know, We are the kind of voices that's missing in today's politics. So when opportunities presented themselves, I said, okay, I'm gonna run. 
And what I chose to run a House of Delegates at the state level was because I have had about a decade of uh, public service experience in Montgomery County at the county level. So I said, this is a new opportunity for me to learn about the state level government and politics because so much of what the state does has disproportionate impact on the largest county in the, yeah. in the state of Maryland, you know. Sure. And so I think I made the right choice. And, you know, I have been proving myself as a very prolific and, and productive legislator so far. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, talk, <laughs> talking about that choice. So I got to say, you know, your your race was just fascinating to observe while it was going on. And then yeah. afterwards, just to, to study everything, because you really did some things have not been done before. You know, you you talk to any political consultant, you know, in a down ballot race that's not statewide, they're going to tell you, go where the voters are, right? Um, you know, don't worry about re-registering these communities. They're not going to come out and vote. You know, well, you flip the script on that. You know, you go to your campaign website, it says democracy favors those who participate, right? Yes. Participation, yeah. keyword, and you really did something that no one, I don't think, has done before in the state of Maryland. Is on a down ballot races, you went out and you organized an unregistered community that really, you know, I, I believe led you, you to victory in a highly competitive race. Uh, so, would love just to chat about, you know, why you thought that was so important when all the pundits were saying do it the other way. Yes. And, and you hit the nail right on the head because it would have been a lot easier if I did not bother to carve out my cultural niche and only went with the script. And I was trained by Emerge Maryland, which gave me a fabulous training on running a textbook campaign. I could have just gone with that. But I also said to myself, given the dynamic of my community, it would be a disservice if I only cared about me winning and not care about bringing my people along for the historic ride. Because if even if I did not win through this process, they, everybody would learn so much because this is bigger than just one campaign, right? And so it was a very, very tough choice, but I decided the most excited people are also my cultural community. And it would be so wrong for me to not engage them and unleash their energy because it would have been a tremendous learning opportunity. And, and, and I was right to carve out a cultural niche by running two concurrent campaigns. One was to target the reliable Democratic voters because that would have made a majority of the votes needed to win by knocking on doors, by sending out mailers, by having meet and greets and all of that. But at the same time, I carved out a separate campaign which was a separate set of channels of communication, including using WeChat, using friends' networks, and a lot of uh, coffee and tea meetings in Chinese restaurants and senior homes and people's living rooms to explain democracy, to explain not only the democratic process about voting, and most people had never heard of primary election, you know, yeah. because they were new voters yeah. or, or, or they only thought of voting as something you do in November, right? Primary election is not much talked about and usually under the radar. Uh, so I had to explain what is primary election, why in the state of Maryland you need to register, and why I personally advise you to register as Democrat. Because if that's the only race that matters, you need to vote in the race that matters, right? And so now you have to explain to them why they should be Democrat and not Republican, right? And so you have to explain the party platforms and all of that. 
But at the end of the day, I was so proud. A lot of my people, a lot of them who were party agnostic, got off the fence, registered as Democrat. And the funniest thing was when people call, text me and say, Lily, I just registered as a Democrat to vote for you. And now I realize I don't Wonderful. even live in your district. Yeah. <laughs> that, no, that's great. So you're, you're, you're lifting, like, lifting all votes. You're not going to vote in the, in the election that exactly. matters. It doesn't matter whether you can vote for me or not. Well, you know? As we always say, you know, AAPI vote is the margin of victory. And you proved that's that. That's right. You proved that's that. That's right. Yeah. And, yeah. and at the end, when I won, you know, we unleashed so much energy and I got a, a very touching email on the election day from a friend who said, because of you, I can claim these firsts. I became a first time donor, a first time volunteer and a first time Democratic primary voter. Right. And so that's the difference you, you make through your campaign. And I think to me, the real victory is that watershed moment when we realize our community transformed itself we learn how the game is played we say to ourselves we can do this too you know we don't have to wait a generation we can do this right yeah so the victory as i'm what i'm hearing not only that you ran essentially almost two campaigns the campaign to turn out the vote and to red, get folks to civically participate, but also the campaign to win the district. What I view it is very much meeting the people where they are at. So yeah. you explain the democracy process. Why is it a, a closed primary? Those Even just getting to those basics of being an immigrant and coming here and doing your duty of voting is so important. So connecting to that about micro-targeting. Let's kind of dive in a little bit. Yeah. I think there's also an element, Jonathan and I, and you as well, have leveraged resources such as ethnic media. We've done translation efforts. We've also, you've brought up WeChat as using that, knowing our audience would engage in certain communications platforms. So kind of like help walk us through if, you know, other uh, people who might be considering these outreach tactics, like how have you effectively used those resources? I think uh, WeChat, for example, right, could be a double-edged sword. And it turned out to be a double-edged sword for me because at first I was not a heavy WeChat uh, user. So I kind of did not leverage that. Um, and then I quickly realized that it was being leveraged by the right wing groups mm -hmm. uh, in my community to attack okay. me. And once I realized that, that and realized how it could be turned around as a tool to send out positive messages to engage people, then our campaign used that to pivot. But that's only one of many tools any campaign should use, right? You should still knock on doors, yeah. uh, even if they are immigrants who don't speak English as a first language, you should still knock on doors and do all of the other ways of engagement and use the ethnic media as an additional tools to supplement, just like social media. It's not the only tool, it's one of the other, many other tools you can use as supplement. Um, because if you know your community largely, you know, virtually live on those platforms, that's where you need to go. You go where they gather, whether it's the mosque and church and physical locations or online places, right? If you know where they gather, you need to go there and humble yourself to make the case, you know? And so that was what I did. I realized a lot of my people do. And also toward the end, um, I also send out letters in bilingual languages in English and Korean, for example, to target because we also have a, a good amount of uh, and Korean immigrants living in my community. So I partner with my Korean American friends and send out bilingual you know, letters to engage them um, because voters tend to be older 
in the primary election, right? So they like a piece of mail instead of an email, you know? So you you, you have to figure out effective ways of communicating with def different demographics by age, by language and cultures and do what you can to get that extra vote. Because in a down ballot vote, every vote matters every vote so much. Matters. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I love just continuing the conversation on, on ethnic media because I think it is, you know, Lily, you know about it, but, you know, there's so many, you know, candidates, you know, down ballot, statewide, local council members who live in areas with a large API population. You know, we've, yeah. we've said this in our past podcast, but the fact of the matter is, is APIs are the fastest growing population in Maryland. Yeah. 13 house districts make up 10% or more of the voting population. So that's 33 delegates and 13 senators, right? You know, a lot of them not through any fault of their own because they don't you don't know what you don't know but you know have problems reaching out to this community because they don't know what the tools that are available to them you know i always tell clients whenever they're wanting to reach out to the community it's like walk to your local h mart and see what the free papers are you know that are that are out in front yes. and advertising them right because yes. you know, it's, it's, it's important right. to reach out to the, these communities who are reading yes. these in language uh, publications and you know reading publications about back home. Right. And ethnic media, even though a lot of them since uh, maybe 10 years ago or so, it was, you know, the, this heydays of ethnic media booming, right, with dozens of Chinese and, and Korean newsletters, uh, newspapers. These days, the, the actual print versions are shrinking, just like the mainstream media. A lot of things have gone online. But still, you know, online digital form is important, whether it's a podcast or radio interview or just, you know, whatever, uh, online digital newsletters, people are still reading them. Um, a lot of people who are professionally highly educated, they speak English fluently, but they still like to read things in their native language. So I think um, having some kind of presence for your campaign as a candidate, um, like as simple as a Lunar New Year uh, language, uh, ad right by a full page ad which is very inexpensive for those ethnic media it sends a message that you want to connect with these people you know it makes a difference uh whether people actually take advantage or not but they think this is a very respectful gesture uh for your campaign so yes you should try to do all of these things if your budget allows as much as possible yeah, absolutely yeah so thank you for sharing that some of the insight on the outreach and we want to touch base on one question. In our last podcast, we talked about raising awareness about our community in May during Heritage Month. But yeah. you and I have had discussions that we need to be visible every month or every day yes. to bring attention to the most critical issues of the AAPI community. So what are ways or capacities that we can kind of bring visibility to our community, you know, not only during election years, but, you know, throughout the year and every year and beyond May? Yeah, I think, <laughs> yes, uh, I, I, I agree. You know, as wonderful as the Asian American Heritage Month is, as I mentioned, as we discussed earlier, this is not a cultural ethnic identity that a lot of people actually identify with. Right. Mm. Um, so uh, as much as we celebrate that, there are so many other ways that people celebrate themselves and their own cultural heritage. So beyond the month of May, for example, for quite a few months, the East Asian and Southeast Asian communities celebrate Lunar New Year. 
And those are the places where people gather and the families gather, and we need to honor their heritage and um, and use those channels of communication and points of uh, contact and engagement to push out voter registration drives, for example. And that was what I did way before I decided to run for office. I worked with those community hometown associations and what have you, and worked with the local Montgomery County, you know, Board of Elections and the League of Women Voters to work with these communities to provide uh, bilingual materials and to push for voter registration drive. We've done that for many years, and that really made a difference. So every year, incrementally with every election, more people get registered and they vote. So intentionality uh, is the key and make the part of their standard operation, so to speak, of each party is the key, right? And I always hear parties say, you know, of course, I only work with Democratic Party and I hear our party always do the GOTV push, right? The get out of the vote. A get out of the vote is always going to be important, but more than get out of the vote last minute or way before the GOTV push is how we can get people off the fence and into our big Democratic blue tent. Because there are so many people who have great reasons to be Democrats, but nobody explained to them the difference between the two parties in a deeply you know, personal way that they can understand, right? Which is as a super tiny mon minority in this country, you, know, you have to understand what's at stake. As I said to a group of Chinese immigrant professionals in Wisconsin uh, in 2020 presidential election about why they should vote for Biden versus Trump. First of all, I didn't think I should have to explain, right? After all that Trump did to uh, Asian Americans. But I also said, you know, at the end of the day, we have to remember there are things more important than our pocketbooks as minorities in this yeah. country, right? So, you know, you have to explain these things to people. One thing I love that you, you've brought up, you know, a few times during this podcast, because it's important, is the fact that, you know, a lot of first generation, you know, Asian American Pacific Islanders, you know, that entire group lack an understanding of the, the two party system, right? You know, I, yeah. we take it for granted, you know, first generation, you know, yeah. I'm not a first generation American. I grew up Republicans, Democrats. These are your two parties. You know, that's yeah. not the system from a lot of these areas, a lot of these API populations are coming from and they get here. And then even what they do hear about a Republican or a Democrat is yeah. not anywhere close to what is actually, you know, correct. Um, so right. how have you navigated that? And do you think that's a problem, you know, this closed primary system we have in Maryland yes. to getting more AAPIs involved uh, in our political process here in the state? I do. I, I really think um, our closed the primary system is locking out a lot of people's votes, not just AAPIs votes, but a lot of young people's votes mm -hmm. and a lot of uh, first time voters who move from other states who just don't understand whether you're from California or Virginia, you have a very different open primary system, right? So when we have this very strict to close the primary, and by the way, Maryland's only one of, I think, 14 states where we have such a system, without explaining to people, a lot of people go to the polls and they swear they are Democrats, for example, and they want to vote for the Democratic ballot. At the end of the day, their ballots are thrown out. So every election cycle, Maryland as a state, throws out thousands of provisional ballots because people voted wrong, right? And why can't we just change the system? Yes, campaigns can take on certain responsibilities of explaining to new voters, but a better way to do it is to change the system to make it more inclusive for first-time voters, 
uh, whether they are new, you know, turning 18 kind of voters or immigrants who don't understand all people from other states. Um, so I have been very passionate about pushing the door wider for close the primaries by delaying party registration deadline from three weeks ahead of election day when a lot of people are not thinking about elections yet mm -hmm. to uh, around early voting time when we still allow in-person registration, right? To allow people to register, affiliate with a party. Unfortunately, we don't have enough momentum from either party to push for that kind of change, but I am passionate in continuing to make our system more open and inclusive because as I said, at the end of the day, the system was not designed for people like us yep. to vote or run for office. Right. So now that I'm in office, I have to push for change. Otherwise, why bother, right? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. It, it, forgive me. It, that would require a majority vote from the General Assembly to um, open up Maryland. Yeah. So it would require, for example, my bill would go to Ways and Means Committee, which oversees election matters. It needs to pass the committee and then the full House, and then it will need to pass the Senate counterpart committee and, and pass the Senate, and then has to be signed by the governor. So that's the life of life cycle of every bill in order to pass. Um, so it, of course, it would be much easier if both parties agree also, mm -hmm. you know, to support that. Um, I know it's a tall order, but many states are doing this kind of reform, which is uh, what we need as Maryland become the only majority minority state, you know, in, in the mid-Atlantic region. It's time to really seriously think about how to reform our election system. Yeah, and I think that you bringing up, even though you know it's a challenge, but by bringing up itself and continuing the dialogue is so important. And then that is how we can bring attention to also those under those voices that are not heard as often. So I think that is seems like a theme that keeps coming up in our, our conversation today. And what can we do to make democracy more accessible to the communities that we represent? Um, yeah. So... I feel like it's important to kind of ensure that we continue the pipeline of Asian Americans running for office. So what would you say to a future budding, aspiring elected official? Um, what would you say to them when they come to you that they would like to run? I first would be very encouraging and say, you know, don't write yourself off as an immigrant. And then you think you need to just play by the rules. And immigrants have been always considered as a group of people that should play by the rules instead of setting the rules. You know, we are actually ready to contribute. Voices like ours are more needed than ever to bring politics to the middle, to bring pragmatic common sense, right, to American politics, because no one knows better than immigrants why America is great. You know, because we chose this country over our home birth country, yeah. because we gave up everything to come to America, you know. Um, so I think immigrant voices are what's missing and needed. And so I would urge people to understand that what makes you different is what makes you valuable. And I am a living proof of that. You know, because I lived through a society with no private sector, I have such deep mm. um, appreciation for the market economy that no one can take away, can lecture me and say you're wrong, right? Because I saw what it was like, you know. Um, and and so when I work with the business community and they they could see that I am genuinely caring about their well-being because they can be used as an instrument to lift the communities and transform our neighborhoods and communities and give people hope and opportunities as one sector among the three sectors, which is public, private, and nonprofit. Each one should play their role in a society. 
And I'm very respectful of that. Yeah. That's the kind of perspective that came from li having lived through a different political system. Um, and which is why I urge other immigrants to value that kind of perspective. You know. Okay, listen, you've heard it here. If you, if you want to run, you know, don't, don't be afraid to be a rebel, is what I'm hearing a little bit. That's right. That's <laughs> what makes you great in a Montgomery it. County Magazine cover story that was uh, uh, titled <laughs> that for, for a story on you, Lily. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, right. we are reaching the end of our time here. And I, I got to say, I have enjoyed this conversation with Delegate Chi. It's just been amazing, you know, hearing from you, hearing from your experiences, and just the fire and the passion that that you have for public service. It's, it's really inspiring. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. I really love this conversation too. We need to have more of these conversations. Completely agree. Yeah. Well, we do have one last question here oh. uh, at the podcast. We always, so, you know, we, we talked about how, you know, yeah, AAPIs, we, we, we are different, right? We're not a monolith. But one thing that does bring us together are our love for dumplings. If, <laughs> every AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander culture you see out there, they have a dumpling that they love. So, Share with our viewers what your favorite dumpling is and why. <laughs> I grew up in Shanghai. I love wonton as one form of dumpling. <laughs> and my yes. husband and I take turns making dumplings. I make wonton, he makes jugs, which is another form of Northern style dumpling, right? And so, yeah. <laughs> I, I love any kind of dumpling, by the way. <laughs> All right, so the, the wonton. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all awesome. right great well thank you so much for joining us thank, thank you so you. much thank you for having me Bye.